A very warm welcome to all of you to Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond podcast. This is your host, Dr. Vignesh Devraj. In today's episode, I am interviewing Dr. Neha Sangwan. She is the CEO and founder of Intuitive Intelligence, and she is a physician and a corporate communication expert. Her private practice and corporate consulting focuses on empowering individuals, organizational leaders and their teams with the mind-body practices to reduce stress in combination with tools for clear, effective communication. And she's also a TEDx speaker. She speaks in various organizations such as American Heart Association, American Express, Kaiser Permanente and Google. And you can find more about her work in drneha.com. And she has written a fantastic book called Talk Rx. It is five steps to honest conversations that create connection, health and happiness. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Neha at Sitaram where she came for her Panchakarma. And the communication that I had with her was just phenomenal. She was talking about how communication can actually heal people and why many people who are going through extraordinary stress can actually resolve it by having better communication skills. And in this interview with her, she explains some of the techniques that she has developed with her experience with her patients and how we can use that in our own life. And she talks about five questions. I found these five questions really profound. I hope you enjoy this interview and I highly recommend her book, Talk Rx. And to know more details about Dr. Neha, please check the show notes of this podcast. And now we go over to Dr. Neha. Dr. Neha, welcome to the show. So happy to have you in this podcast. Great to be here, Vignesh. So Neha, I'm so fascinated after reading your book, Talk Rx, and I want to deep dive into the concept why you wrote this book. And also we're going to deep dive about all the concepts that you mentioned in this book. So First of all, you know, after reading this book, you know, how you elaborated about communication. I mean, we think that communication is about making the other person understand. Uh, you know, every one of us have a deep need to be understood. That's one of the things. But you took it to another level saying that communication can actually heal. Mm-hmm. And we never understood the healing powers of what actually communication can do. And also the wonderful five questions that you talk about and also integrating the I-5 concepts. So I'm looking forward to deep dive into this before I explain what I understood. I would like to hear from you. But first of <laughs> all, what what's your story? You know, looking at your story from what you were as an engineer coming to a doctor and writing a book on communication and holistic approach and you and also the concept that, you know, you're a founder of intuitive intelligence. So the word intuition. And also, I would like to know what is intuition. I always like to hear what people talk about intuition. So this is about <laughs> me. Now it's time to get from you, Dr. Neha. So what made you write this book? And mm. from where did you start this? Oh, well, thank you, Vignesh. Well, I'd say it all starts. It's true. I'm a mechanical and biomedical engineer. I worked for Motorola back in the 90s as a manufacturing engineer. And then I went back to medical school and became an internal medicine physician. So for all of you listening, that just means I'm a really good Indian child. (laughs) (laughs) Just miss being a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, there's still time. (laughs) So 
My father wanted me to be an engineer uh, and be this, you know, there's three daughters. He, I was the second child. I was the son that he really, you know, hoped would be there. So mm -hmm. I had a real good aptitude for math and science and problem solving. When I got into engineering, what I realized was there was a gap in my desire to connect to people. I always mm -hmm. looked forward to meetings. The engineers looked forward to going back to their desks, right? So the problem solving angle was always there. The lack of interpersonal contact was what I felt. So I went on, I went to medical school. That was mom's dream. Her parents never let her become a doctor. She wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, they said that wouldn't make you a good homemaker, a good wife, a good mother. So they didn't want her to always be on call. So I fulfilled that dream for her. And what I found was there was problem solving, absolutely. And mm -hmm. I got that much desired interpersonal connection. Mm -hmm. When I graduated, what I began to realize is there's something called continuity of care, right? Mm -hmm. So you've had a patient, they come in again, you get assigned to them, even if your palate is full, right? Your uh, roster is full that day because you already know the patient and they know you and they already trust you. Well, I went into hospital care and I got accolades, chocolates, cards from people's families. Oh, Dr. Sangwan, you're so incredible. Thank you for saving my dad from a stroke, a heart attack, my mom, right? About four years into practice, I started to realize that Mr. Jones was back in the ER with another heart attack, with mm. another stroke. And it absolutely, I felt like a gut punch. Mm -hmm. Like as the engineer in me was like, wait, I'm just band-aiding someone's symptoms through a crisis. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually getting to the root cause of the problem. Then the spiraling costs in the U.S. of healthcare made perfect sense to me. If what we did was a Band-Aid approach, if we just you know, took care of people through a crisis or numb symptoms, of course it would become costlier and costlier to do this. So that was when I uh, decided that this wasn't the end for me. This was just the beginning of learning. But it also, as many of you who have ever been in a job that you've outgrown or realized wasn't the right fit, in that moment, it took out the energy from underneath me. I was in such a demanding job. Uh, it was one of the tipping points for me burning out. Mm. And I burned out and thought it was the worst thing in the world that now I was some sort of failure, right? Except what it was, was the beginning of my true life. So as I was off on three months of leave for burnout, I started researching what is at the root of stress? I mean, what is at the root of illness? And I found out that 90 to 95% of illness is caused or exacerbated by stress. I was fascinated. Why in all my years of schooling, I didn't get out of school until I was 31 years old. Why had no one mentioned this? So I, start, I went back to work and I um, asked my colleagues, I said, listen, I found this research. Let's read these papers. Let's do this at our next you know, learning experience together at Grand Rounds. And I said, listen, why are we not asking patients what's at the root of their stress? And they, with a dead straight face, looked at me and said, just like you would never order a test that you didn't know what to do with the answer nor would you ask a question that you didn't I'm mean, with the result, nor would you ask a question that you didn't know what to do with the answer. Mm. 
And this upset me more than everything else, which is we are really smart people. Mm. It is our job and people depend on us to figure this out. So I have gone on a 20 year journey to figure out what is at the root of people's stress and help that uh, be turned around. So I asked the hospital administration, I said, can I start you know, an experiment? If, if this is true, can we start asking patients when they're just about to leave the hospital about their stress and what's at the root of it to try and prevent them from being here again? They said, there's no funding. There's no funding for that. So I said, okay, I'll do it on my own. So I started, I had 18 hospitalized patients, anywhere from 16 to 18 a day. I started asking my own patients. I did my own N equals one experiment. Mm -hmm. And after thousands and thousands of them, I, I think I stopped counting at 2,700, but I kept going for another few years. So I'm pretty sure there's 5,000 in there, but I stopped counting after 2,700 in a row, knew exactly why they were sick, knew what the stress was about and what the message was their body needed to give them. And so this goes back to the um, goes back to the question you asked about the five questions. Well, Neha, what did you do? Right? What did I do with my patients to get those answers? And I call this the awareness prescription. And this is in the introduction of TalkRx. It was so astounding to me that we, as a system, the Western medical system focus on physical ailments solely with a physical cause, like assuming that there's a physical cause. So if someone comes in, let's say they have palpitations and they say to me, uh, doc, I have palpitations. Maybe I'll, you know, put them on a monitor. I'll check mm. and make sure if they have chest pain, chest discomfort, nausea, whatever, I'll make sure they're not having a heart attack. I'll do all the things that are crisis related. But what I do not do is when when all of that those tests come back and say this person's not having a heart attack there's no acute abnormal rhythm electrically whatever's going on i look at them and i say guess what there's nothing wrong with you hmm. except they're still feeling that experience inside them so now i lose trust with them because they know something's wrong but i'm telling them nothing's wrong my plea to the doctors out there that practice Western medicine is to say something more like there's good news and there's bad news. Mm -hmm. The good news is your physical heart is in great shape. None of the tests I have done, stress tests and EKGs and blood work, it all came back normal. Great news. Now, the bad news is you're still having symptoms. So what I know is that that's real, but sometimes it can be the result of something not being resolved in your life on a mental, emotional, social, or spiritual level. And it may be showing up in your body to get your attention. So I want you to follow up. You do all the regular follow-up. We stay engaged in case something changes, but they have the information that they're not crazy, that something else might be going on and that it's all connected. So the five questions that you asked me. So what I did was the night before I would discharge my patients, I would ask them five questions. Now, back then, uh, it was the early 2000s. I was in a white coat and the only paper I had with me was a prescription pad. So I would pull the prescription pad out of my pocket and I'd say, I'm interested. Uh, you're going home tomorrow. Uh, I'd like to talk to your family and make sure that the environment for you is set up for success. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to get to the root of 
your stress. And I want to see you again, just at the theater, or at the grocery store, not in the emergency department. So that's why we would be doing this. Mm -hmm. So if you answer these five questions and the nurse pages me tomorrow, I'll spend an extra 20 or 30 minutes with you getting to the root of your stress. Mm -hmm. So the question was, number one, why this? Why? Say it again. Such a powerful question straight to the point. Why this? Yeah, like why a heart attack? Why not your liver? Why not your left leg? Why did this part of your body break down? Question number two. Why now? Why not three years ago? Why not two weeks from now? What message did your body need you to get in this moment that you were not getting? Mm-hmm. Number three, since hindsight's 2020, tell me what symptoms, signals, patterns you might have missed along the way that make perfect sense now. Sometimes people say to me, are you blaming the patient that this is their fault? Not at all. I am hoping to connect the dots so that something they didn't think was related now makes perfect sense and allows them to pay attention early next time. Question number four, what else in your life needs to be healed? Mm -hmm. And question number five, if you spoke from the heart, what would you say? And you know this, Dr. Vignesh, I've been with you at Sitharam and Uh, The power of listening to someone when they're concerned about their health, when they have a symptom they don't understand, uh, the power of our work is often in the presence we we give someone and the healing that occurs by listening to their pain. Mm. And so 80, sometimes 90% of my patients It came down to their inability to communicate with themselves and know what they wanted or needed, how they felt, their thoughts were undermining them. So I realized, oh my gosh, you all know that your inability to communicate with yourselves. And sometimes my son married outside my faith and I have disowned him and I haven't seen my grandchildren. It's sometimes it was between them and another person, sometimes a loved mm. one, sometimes a job. Uh, they they made a fool of themselves. They didn't like, they got upset in a meeting and people started to judge them. Things that they never really healed in their mm. communication with themselves or each other was what surfaced as the predominant cause of miscommunication. Hmm. They had made a mistake. They hadn't apologized. Maybe they apologized, but it made things worse. They didn't know how to lean into conflict. So they talked about people, not to them. That got back to the person that they cared about. And all of a sudden they lost the relationship. Hmm. So they described all of these things. And the other thing I noticed is this closer they were to the end of their life, the clearer the, their values and the order in which they prioritized their values. It just came crystal clear. So I, you know, in my 20s and 30s, when I used you say to say closer to the end of their life means people who are like in a terminal disease or they're like, yeah, or death. It, exactly. Okay. Or, or um, yeah, the severity of mm. their diagnosis, the all of a sudden, right? If, if it, it depended how much they were surprised. That's the deal. So if they were a 55-year-old athlete who just had a heart attack, Mm. they're like, 
but I've spent my whole life, you know, exercise like this can't be. So it was more than the end of their life as it was. Uh, thank you for clarifying that as how surprised and unexpected the event was. Mm. Right. Out if of somebody the blue, said, suddenly they thought everything the was going to be perfect. And then stroke, heart attack, bam. Yeah. Like the, I remember in my book, the, one of the last stories I tell is about a 48 year old woman who mm-hmm. ran the household. She was the one in charge, 48 years old, prime of her life. Right. And she has a stroke. So her laying on the bed, unable to, you know, slurring, drooling, unable to speak while her entire family feels helpless around her panicking. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she's witnessing her family panic as she cannot, she feels helpless to take on the role of soothing them. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most stark uh, experiences that I saw. And once she, you know, got better, the conversations we had, she said, everything became clear. Mm-hmm. I don't need troll anymore. I need to teach my children how to handle disappointment, how to handle mm-hmm. this kind of you know, unexpected situation, because that's going to help them in their lives. So these moments are, I call them sacred exchanges. Hmm. And I don't think we have to be a doctor to have sacred exchanges with people. I think it happens with the person who's helping you with your groceries. It's the person who's driving you to your next event. Sacred exchange, it's the person I sit next to on the plane who I don't know. If we're open as humans, and we're curious, there is, we don't know what we'll find, but I promise you, it will return us back to meaning and purpose in our lives. Mm. So I rediscovered my meaning and purpose in medicine through that experience. Then I did a 90, I did a, took doctors and nurses and administrators on my day off because no one was going to pay me. Every Tuesday, I ran three mind-body skills groups, taught them about the, the importance of nutrition, the uh, detrimental impact of stress, and how to communicate. After so, twenty five percent of these ninety six uh, providers mm-hmm. were on some sort of medication themselves for sleep, anxiety, headaches, whatever it was. So, in the intake, they told me. So, twenty five percent of them uh, were on medication after only eight weeks of doing this, sorting through their communication issues, teaching them how to eat in a way that wasn't processed, but was whole foods Mm. uh, at regular intervals and how to lower their stress levels through breathing, manage their emotions and not manage emotions. I would say reveal, feel, and heal your emotions. That's a more accurate way of saying it. Their blood pressure came down every single one of them and they're providers, not patients. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those 25% either decreased their medication use or came off it entirely. Wow. And that was eight weeks. So I knew I had something. And so I went out into the world after that. I left my, I was tenured in as a partner for life. I left that security in 2008 and I started intuitive intelligence because my patients over and over again said to me, Doc, why is the price of meeting you and learning this information? Why is the price of that a heart attack, a stroke, or a pneumonia? And I was very naive at the time. I said, well, that's what they pay me to do. They pay me to clean up the mess. They don't pay me to prevent the problem. Mm. 
But I realized as the years went by and they kept asking me that question, that the real answer was that I was afraid. I was mm -hmm. afraid to go out and pave a new path. I was afraid to give up my security. I was afraid to do it in a new way. What would my parents say? What would the Indian community say? What would, right? Like if I got out of a white coat and I did this for a corporate America in the way that I want to 20 years before they ended up in a emergency department, would people take me seriously? And so I had all these fears. And so finally, the day I left, it was the day uh, after I met this woman, Sarah, with the stroke. It's all in the book. Um, but the day I left was the day I realized um, my courage had to exceed my fear of leaving the institution and being judged by people for doing something different that wasn't, you know, than, than the institution of medicine in the Western world was telling me. And even though it didn't work, it felt scary to leave. So that is how I got here. <laughs> Fantastic. That was a long one. <laughs> so I really like that. Reveal, feel, and heal your emotions. Wow. Reveal, yep. feel, and heal. Yeah. Got three powerful Norm words. Normally, we numb it, avoid, avoid it, numb it, and stuff it. Suppress it, put it under the carpet. Tell somebody else. Up. Exactly. But not the actual person you need to tell. Hmm. I'm serious, Vignesh. Ever since I was little, my parents had me watch many Bollywood movies. I was like, Mom, why does everybody talk about each other, not to each other? <laughs> about each and other, but not to each other. Wow. Yes. So true. Right? And I thought then as I grew older, I realized we also do that in the hospital. Hmm. We talk when we don't, when I don't like the way a colleague is behaving, I talk to the nurse or my other colleague rather than talking to the person I need to talk to. Mm -hmm. So we're not, oh, you know, conflict will inhibit your biology. Your biology literally thinks it's not safe. Hmm. Maybe you've lost someone in the past. Maybe you tried to have a conversation with someone and they blew up. Maybe it was scarier to lean into them. Maybe in your mm -hmm. family, you mm -hmm. saw the consequences of your parents or your siblings standing up and saying, hey, this doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've literally learned that it's dangerous to lean into conflict. And I think that's why we have a very divided world. It's one of the big contributors to mm. us not being able to have honest conversations and find mutual common ground. So what would you recommend people who are afraid of having those honest conversations? What will be the baby steps? I mean, someone who is really afraid, if I tell the truth, oh my God, I might hurt the other person or I might miss out or I don't want to hurt that person. It's going to be very, you know, when I was studying, uh, there, you know, since my father always wanted me to be an Ayurvedic doctor, he made me study Sanskrit. Mm. So uh, there is this um, chapter called Subhashidam where it talks about uh, wisdom for life in, in Sanskrit quotes. So there is a sutra, it says, Apriyam Satyam Nabruyat, which actually means don't tell truth that can be hurtful. Oh. Uh, but actually what it meant was tell the truth, but 
don't hurt tell it with empathy that's what also the other meaning was so uh, so we think okay so if it's going to hurt it's better not to tell but at the same time you don't you have to tell the truth but maybe in a, you know there is this book called non violent communication so something like that yes. so how yes. can we communicate the truth that could actually hurt or the truth that can be quite rude or truth that can be quite blunt yeah. and somebody who is very scared of telling that because they are they could be very empathizing the other person's feelings yes or sometimes they just didn't want to so what would be the basic steps to build up that muscle to tell the truth sure well this is a little bit of a complicated one it's going to come in a few parts here <laughs> the most important thing is for let's let's bring it back to me being a doctor and you being a doctor we wouldn't dream of not telling our patient that they had an ailment if i discover cancer in someone if i discover there's a heart attack if i discover something on a physical level mm. my job is with clarity conciseness and compassion mm. to deliver that news and trust that the patient in front of me the human in front of me this is part of their life's journey yes yes so i don't think twice it's more about how and when am i going to do this in a way that is compassionate mm. so when people say well i didn't tell her because she couldn't handle it mm. okay I do have to tell you um my Indian uh, Indian families will sometimes pull me aside and tell me that their nani cannot handle it telling her if something's wrong. Mm. She never has been able to handle it. Don't tell her, just tell us. And I smile and I say, "Thank you for your love and concern. She's I been in her body, her body for 82 years. I'm pretty sure she already knows." Mm. So I'm kind to them. I'm compassionate with them. I see and hear their empathy and their love and how scared they are for to hurt someone they love. And I also, now here's the twist. I trust that their nani, my patient, is strong, resourceful and capable. Mm. She's made it through 82 years on this planet. She is strong, resourceful and capable. And by the way, she's got these five grandkids. right like she's mm -hmm. she she really can handle it so the beginning bases when you you have something to tell someone even when they're young even a 5 year old even a young young child if you start by believing that they are strong resourceful and capable hmm. and that they can handle what their life has brought them as lessons to learn hmm. your job is to show up in a clear concise and compassionate loving way to deliver the truth to them because in the end no matter what the relationship is that you're having this conversation in the end if your intention is to strengthen that relationship you will come from a very different place when you speak mm. if your intention is to make them wrong see i told you so you did it wrong now if you're going to come from that angle that intention no matter what you say is going to go into a direction that is rough so you have to begin by now another reason that people don't tell other people is in fact they're worried about themselves being in the face of that kind of pain emotion whatever might result so it gets confusing they make it about the other person this is very funny um you know my uh 
I have a youth group who are teenagers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes, okay, so they date when they're like, you know, 16, 18 years old, they go on dates and things. And they'll say to me, Neha, I'm not going to break up with my boyfriend because he can't handle it. Mm. And what I say to them is, is it him that can't handle it? How are you doing? How will you feel in that moment? <gasps> okay, I just don't want to feel like the bad person. This isn't going to work out. But I And then you see what they're really afraid of is what they will feel like in the presence of somebody feeling disappointed. Mm. And so as a parent with a child, in a partnership, with friends, whatever it is, pay attention to whether it's you that you're worried about and not wanting to face something or whether mm. it's actually the other person can't handle it because I'm, I'm betting that they can. So the next, the next piece is when someone else maybe has a, a surprising reaction to something that you've said, they get defensive, they get upset. Do you have the capability in that moment to drop into your body, breathe mm -hmm. and allow them to reveal, feel, and he heal that mm -hmm. emotion? Sometimes they're going to get up and leave. They need space. Sometimes they're going to say something harsh back mm. to you. Whatever it is, is it you that you're worried about and not them about what will happen if I actually say this? So before we can even get to the conversation, we have to understand you. And then there is this last idea that I'll bring in here, which is short-term versus long-term. Mm. So there's something I call a choice point. This will actually be coming out in my next book, which is on healing burnout. But it's about if I, let's say it's between you and I, you did something, we were in a meeting, you said something, um, you took credit for something I did, right? All things I'm sure you would do. And, <laughs> and so I'm feeling hurt, okay? And so I go, I tell someone else about it. I don't tell you, I'm just, did you, can you believe he said that, right? Now, I have a choice in the moment. I can either say something to you. I can avoid it, go talk to other people, and then have the short-term high of avoiding any discomfort and end up with the long-term low in our relationship. Because mm. every time I see you after that, what's going to come up in my heart and mind is, oh, I can't trust you. I can't trust you. You're going to take credit for whatever I'm doing, right? Now, if I take the short-term dip, in the moment, which might have my stomach drop, which might have my heart racing. And I say, hey, Vignesh, remember when we talked about doing this together? In the meeting just now, I heard you say that you were going to spearhead this. Has something changed? Mm -hmm. That's how long it takes, by the way. When you are clear, and you, but I have to be willing to go through my heart racing, stomach turning, and turn towards you, not away from you. And if I do that short-term dip of discomfort, I now have a chance for the long-term high where you say, oh, Neha, I didn't know you wanted to work on this. I thought you were more interested in the other program that we were doing. I will correct it in the follow-up notes. I'm excited to do this with you. Or, wow, Neha, I did say that. Uh, I'm, I think it's better that I do this, right? I'm afraid to hear the actual answer. And so there's a there's several components to this. And first, what you have to do, and the most important thing, is to trust that every one of us is a soul on this planet 
on a journey to evolve our souls with every interaction we have with each other. And how well we learn to communicate with ourselves and each other will determine how quickly we learn those lessons mm -hmm. and how much we progress together. Mm -hmm. That's quite Was phenomenal. That, that, uh, that reveals a lot. I think, uh, okay, somebody did something and I don't connect with what that person said and I'm hurt with what that person said. But I feel, should I confront him? That's one of the things. And if I confront him, what's the point? Because if he was really genuine, he wouldn't have said that. So mm. some people give up. What's the point in going and saying that? You know, People okay. are people, that kind of a thinking. So in such a situation, what would that be? Still, in spite of that, let's just go and ask him. Is that what yeah. you would say? Well, well, I think it's the underlying assumption. So my underlying assumption when I meet somebody or have an exchange with somebody is uh, that they, they have positive and generous intent. So I believe um, there's something that we should talk about here called a take two. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, think of your favorite movie. So give me your favorite movie. What would that be? If you have a favorite movie that you just enjoy, it doesn't have to be the uh, only movie, you love, but one of your favorite. a movie favorite. called Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. Love it. I watch it each yeah. Christmas. <laughs> so life is beautiful. So life is beautiful wasn't made into this phenomenal, heartfelt, amazing experience for you because they did it all in one take. Mm. There were a million take twos that did, yes. went over and over again to make this this beautiful story. Mm. And I feel that way about our lives. It's almost like, why don't we allow ourselves to do take twos? So it would sound something like this. And I'm a little bit vulnerable when I have these conversations with people, I would say. So Vignesh, um, I would love to talk to you about what happened in the meeting just now. Mm -hmm. um, it'll probably take 10 minutes. When is a good time for you? So the first thing you do when you set up a conversation like that, it's in my best interest that you are present. Mm. That I tell you how much time I need. I tell you what the topic is. And I ask for your permission to engage. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when I get there, I can, one thing to do is I, I tell the truth. Listen, my throat's a little constricted and my heart's racing. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say, I will be chairing the program, you know, to, to help so-and-so. And what I thought the issue was, I, I thought that we were both going to co-chair. And so did something change? And so what I've done is I've given you the data of what's happening, but I don't mm -hmm. say this. I think you're being rude. I think you're power hungry. I think you're taking over the, the program. I assume generous and positive intent. And then I ask you, I allow you that space. What happened? Did something change? Is there mm -hmm. something I take on my own curiosity and that I may not actually, there might be information I don't have. Hmm. And so when I come from that place, I have a, a love, a compassion, a genuine connection, a desire to partner with you. Mm -hmm. There are a few people who won't meet that with, oh, oh, wow. Did I hurt your feelings? Was that, I'm sorry. I thought I should just take over or whatever it is. Oh, okay. Well, if you decided that um, next time, will you please let me know if something changes mm. or can we talk about that? But the clearer I am in who I am, what I feel, what I want, 
and how I communicate, the bigger advantage I have in every conversation to influence, to connect, versus going around people, manipulating, going under and around, because that's short term. And, you know, I teach, uh, I teach a program on conscious capitalism, uh, where what we say is, in your life, Mm -hmm. if you are functioning in a transactional manner, just getting what you want right now, it will undermine your relationship over time. So uh, what I uh, advocate in in this book is learn how to communicate with yourself, learn how to communicate with each other, because you're in a relational experience. I can think of nothing more important in a marriage, in a family, in a business partnership, in a friendship. So if you think about it, you know, I actually don't understand how people have made it through life not knowing this. It's really hard, you know, to not know this and stumble through this. And do I say it? Well, don't worry about the other person. Hold them as strong, resourceful, and capable. Focus on yourself. What is my intention? How do I do this in a clear, concise, respectful, compassionate way? How do I stay curious? And how do I build a bridge from me to them? Because this isn't a transaction. This is a relationship. Hmm over time. That's so powerful. So Dr. Nehab, so in your experience, you said that, you know, you asked these five questions. Let's just go mm-hmm. through those five questions again. Like why this and then why now? And then what else needs to be healed? And did I miss something? The third question yeah, it's, it, it hindsight's twenty twenty. What that you didn't recognize back then now makes perfect sense. And uh, then what, what you didn't know before, but now you are able to connect the dots. Something that's right. That's and right. Then, and, um, and then, if you were to speak from your heart, what would that be? These are the five questions. So, when you asked these, you said you questioned, uh, you had this, you call this awareness prescription. I like the name awareness prescription, very powerful. So, if you were to, you know, sum up like some of the most aha answers that you got from your. That, more than 2,000 or 5,000 answers that you got. Something that clicks in your head. Wow, that was quite powerful. What would that be? If you you were to give like two or three answers that you found to be concise. Of course. Well, there was uh, a man who was a triathlete and um, a head of a company, made lots of money by all of society's... um, indicators or Mm -hmm. measurements would be very successful, but he never inside, he felt empty and he kept trying and trying and Mm. realized, oh my gosh, my father passed away five years ago and I am still trying to make him proud. Mm. And his awareness of why his blood pressure went through the roof, why he had a stroke, why he was never satisfied despite achieving all of those things was just a watershed moment for him. I mean, I could see just the relief on his face. I should have measured his blood pressure in that moment because I'm pretty sure it plummeted and went to normal. You know, (laughs) Um, there was another woman, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of angst uh, around marriage, right? Mm. And, and it's not just about two people coming together, but when it's two families coming together, 
it's really about, you know, people sometimes feeling threatened, sometimes feeling, is this person good enough for my daughter, for my son? Like all of these, you know, all of their unhealed experiences in their own life for parents come up, their wishes for us, right? Mm-hmm. As we go through this. And so uh, there was a woman who was on a ventilator and she was, she's a Jewish woman and was, she was very upset that her husband, I mean, uh, her son married was going to marry an Indian woman. Mm-hmm. And so she disowned him. She I hadn't see. seen any of her grandkids, right? So when she came in with a pneumonia and on a ventilator, I was her doctor that night by random assignment. So once we got her off the ventilator, we helped her heal, right? She just looked at me when she was answering those questions and was stunned to see that here I was giving her all this love and whatever judgments she had about an Indian woman, I had helped save her life. What a coincidence. <laughs> well, I mean, so to me, the universe gives us these lessons all the time. But if mm-hmm. we don't ask the questions, we don't make the connections. Mm-hmm. And so another one would be um, that uh a man who was in the military Mm. who had a heart attack and cried and cried. He was crying and crying for days. Mm. And he said to me, I thought I left the war decades ago. I thought I left my heart there. I don't ever want to talk about my friends who died about who I killed. I, and yet this heart attack came in and I have been unable to stop crying. And I think you're helping me heal all the tears that I la- thought I left in Vietnam. Mm. And, you know, it's, I don't have to do anything other than be present, be willing to have the sacred exchange, allow people to speak their truth and have, let them have the courage that I spoke to you about me having the day that I left, mm. right? Uh, traditional practice and kind of forged a path on my own. So really, Uh, What I'd say is um, you can use this not just for a physical ailment. You can use this for conflict in your life. You can say like, why this? Why do I feel betrayed? Because someone shared a secret or Mm. did why this? Why now? What signals might might I have missed? What else in my life needs to be healed? And if I spoke from the heart, what would I say? It applies to business dilemmas, to personal dilemmas. Really, in your life, it's an awareness prescription that is much bigger than just a physical signal. Wow. And uh, doctor, you know, you also mentioned you question people who are like nearing death, like who are facing death. In fact, in fact, stroke, heart attack, these people actually relive or reborn. You can also call it. Some people say that after that heart attack, now I feel I'm reborn. This is my second innings or second chapter of my life, things like that. So there was one study, I don't know uh, if it is true, but you know, people who were near to death, they were asked if you had a time machine and if you could go back, uh, what would you like to change? And they said, oh, I wish I didn't stress so much. I wish I didn't take life so hard. Mm-hmm. Was there any answers like this that you got? Because you said you met people who are like facing death, something like that. You bet. You know, it's funny in my, in my life, people said to me, you know, in their twenties, they were all traveling and having fun and all of this. And I was like deep into engineering and medicine. And I didn't even come up for air until I was 31. And I left the hospital around 38. Mm -hmm. And so the first 
you know, four decades of three, four decades of my life are spent in pursuit of this. And people said, oh, I feel so sorry for you. And I said, sorry for me? My mm. 20s and 30s were a front row seat to the end of the game. Mm. I sat with people. I saw what mattered to them. I saw that while we make it about money and title and prestige and titles on your door and awards and all these things, why did no one speak of that at mm-hmm. the end of their life? What they spoke about was who, who I love, who loved me and mm-hmm. how well we loved each other or mm-hmm. didn't and the risks they didn't take that they regret. They the did they didn't take about. that they regret. Oh, so I their regrets, their regrets were never about mm-hmm. what they did. Their regrets were about what they didn't have Missed. the courage to do. So wow. go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off a little bit there. No, no, no. Actually, I think I cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it. you know, they never talked about money. They never said I should have worked more. They said I should have loved more. I should have expressed myself more. I should have shared, you know, more openly, you know. So to them, in the stress aspect, they said they worried about things that weren't as important, that didn't matter. Mm. You know, did I, do I have enough money? Did, did, did society think this of me? I was worried about people's judgments. So I made myself small, you know? And so I used to say to them, I, I was a very radical doctor. I would say things. So at the end of your life, when you have like, let's say metastatic cancer, or there's not a way where we can help you mm. lengthen your life anymore. We have to sign something called a do, do not intubate, do not code, right? DNR, DNI. Well, everybody started asking me, why do all of your patients sign? They sign. Mm -hmm. And I say, I said, because when I go in there, what I say to them is, if your life ended unexpectedly in the near future, and like tomorrow, today, what would be left undone for you? Wow. And they say, I haven't spoken to my older brother in five years. We got in a fight and I never said anything. I never apologized to my daughter for being rude Mm. to her friend on our trip and ruining their relationship. So they, they know very quickly what those things are. So I used to say to them, great, you get them on the phone tomorrow at two o'clock. I'm going to come in. And if you're ready, I will help you facilitate that conversation. We would facilitate the conversation. There'd be tears. We'd be present and they would sign. Doc, I'm ready. And so what I think is the problem is people think that patients are the ones that are resistant. Mm -hmm. No, it's that we have not done our job to be curious and help them at this enormous milestone to feel complete. Mm. That's our job too. It's my job to look at diagnostic tests. It's my job to, you know, look at their blood results and all of those things. But what if my job at some point becomes walking beside them in the sacred journey Mm. out of this world? And that's why, you know, in many spiritual teachings or philosophical teachings, they say it will be a good ritual to face death. Imagine it's your last day. What would you do? And what would that be? And many people, uh, they don't care about money. They don't care about or what. I, what are the materialistic thing I missed out? It's all about the emotions, the the pain that 
people caused because of the lack of communication or somebody did not reach out at that point of time everything just melts and then suddenly once they open up they realize oh my god why did i have this anticipated thinking that you know you are the one who's stopping but it's actually uh, unwanted imagination inside of me that's right and you know judgment like we mm-hmm. we fear we Prejudice. we so bad we want to belong and the idea of feeling that i might be rejected or mm-hmm. that pain you know the pain emotional pain lights up on fmris in the same place that physical pain lights up in your brain mm-hmm. it is wow. it is as if your leg is going to break when your heart breaks i have to tell you i actually think heartbreak is bigger than physical pain yeah because physical, that pain will heal that's right and this one there's no morphine that's going to help it there's no mm. right like it's there's only one way and it's through and i think in our relationships uh friendships the ones that i value the most are the ones that have sometimes been hurtful but mm. they have been true because those are the people i know will tell me the truth those are the people i know care enough to get uncomfortable to make our relationship important to go through that dip of discomfort because they care enough mm-hmm. um and sometimes it's messy and you have to have grace for each other you have to say i might not do this perfectly and i might say the wrong thing and if i do we'll do a take two but i want to get this off my heart and mind Mm. Could I have half an hour with you? Can we have chai together and can we just sit and talk about what's been on my heart and mind? And in a relationship, um one of the best practices I've found is actually proactively mm-hmm. to set aside that time where 10 minutes and 10 minutes drinking tea or whatever the ritual is that you do uh together where one person gets to speak for 10 minutes uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the other person listens and then you switch. And I I call it being a self-cleaning oven. Mm-hmm. That if there's one thing we know, living together and experiencing life together, things are going to come up. So why wouldn't we proactively build in time mm-hmm. to connect and to clean ourselves of anything that uh has arisen, something we're wondering about, something we're upset about? Mm-hmm. why wouldn't we build that in so that uh our relationships can flourish i think uh, and that's also why you know immunity and relationships are so connected i mean when you have good relationships and people who have good relationships i think it's comes to the idea about they are better in understanding people and better in communicating and know I mean, themselves very well exactly right because the clearer i know myself the easier it is for me to articulate what i want and the more confident i am in being open mm. to hearing you right and so mm. there's there's like a generosity uh there's a self confidence and self worth so that i can mm. ask for what i need i can draw boundaries i can disappoint you by saying thank you for that invitation but this it won't work for me So mm. I know where I end and you begin versus a a mixed codependence that we can't separate ourselves. Mm. So I think sometimes we have to go through, you know, families will say to me and clients will say to me, "Oh, it's so awful, my children aren't getting along or whatever's happening, right?" Mm-hmm. And I say to them, 
this is just the middle of the story. I know you want a happy ending, but this is just the middle. And sometimes you have to break the way things were in order to put it back together in a way that's going to work moving forward. So you really want to ask yourself around conflict and communication, what is your tolerance level in being able to sit in the discomfort of the middle? Hmm. Because that will determine whether you give up what you really want and say, okay, forget it, forget it. I'll, I'll give you what you want. Right. And they just endure it. Yes. And they just endure it. And this isn't about endurance anymore. We live in a world where if we understand ourselves and each other, our job is to build something better together than we could, could have built alone. I think we are trained to endure the wrong things. That's where, that's where, I don't know if we are trained or maybe it's an unconscious pattern of training that we endure the wrong things in life and that just complicates and manifests as symptoms that the medical textbooks cannot explain. <laughs> so what ex a few examples of what, what you mean by that? What would that be? Like, like as you mentioned, you know, I, I, like you said about the Jewish lady who had to disown her son because there was a prejudice mm -hmm. about this Indian woman that she's going to get married to and that's going to have. So somewhere there's a mental block that yeah. why can't people be open and that uh, the idea that giving it a benefit of doubt. Yeah. You know what it is though? All of our interactions with one another highlight an area that needs to be healed in us. Mm. And so when we come into that place, do we expand our perspective and be able to see more than we did before? Or do we shut down and dig in to being mm. right? And I think it's about whether people take the opportunity uh, of that friction mm -hmm. to become curious mm -hmm. or to become self-righteous. And, you know, it, it depends. And I think when we decide that the relationship is more important and we're willing to learn and grow together, then we get to go on the journey together. Otherwise, sometimes it is the right time when our values don't align, when we need to stand up for things that are not just. Sometimes mm. it is time for us to go separate ways. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, you wrote a book on communication. That must mean all the relationships in your life are just incredible. <laughs> and I say, no, that's not true. I'm human, just like everybody else. I've documented, you know, some tools that I think could shorten the journey for other people and give them mm. the shortcut, right? Um, of what took me five decades to learn. And so I struggle just like everybody else. Mm. Um, I do have more tools in my toolbox and I can recover probably quicker than most people. But that's because I've dedicated my life to this, mm -hmm. right? And so I uh, definitely want to put that out there. Every relationship in my family and in my life um, is not perfect. And I even ex express it in Talk RX. I tell you how, you know, my nanny when I was young, or she only wanted the best for me. By the way, nanny means just for people who doesn't understand uh, whose nanny is. Uh, your mother's grandmother, like your mother's mother. So your yeah, grandmother, grandmother yes, on the mother's side is. is Nani. And she, you know, in India, there's this thing about people being fair versus darker. And I was about oh four God, shades. Yes. Oh, <laughs> we have fair it, and it lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things that is sad to me. The caste system and the, the color of people's skin is one of the 
things I have had the biggest struggle uh, yes. with with our culture. We have so many good things, mm. yoga, Ayurveda, and amazing healing practices. The and then there's side. some that we have a long way to go on. Mm. And so my skin was like about four shades darker than my sisters and my family. And I had grown up in Africa because my grandfather and grandmother were working for the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And so I went on assignment with them for a few years. Well, Nani, in the book, I, I talk about this. Nani would say to me when I was a little, little girl, four years old, three, four years old, running around playing outside, Neha, get back in the house or you're going to get too dark and no one's going to marry you. I'm four years old mm -hmm. and I would come in and I would scrub my skin in the bathroom. I would be, what do you mean? No one's going to marry me. Like thinking something was wrong with me. Right mm -hmm. now that was not her intention. She only wanted the best for me, but these built-in ingrained cultural experiences, it's time for us to question them and see the beauty in people. And it, it was a good, my nanny loved me and I had a lot of lessons I needed to learn about what made me beautiful on the inside out, what mm. allowed me to become who I am and how can I see each patient, each person, each human that I interact with as a sacred exchange. I like that sacred exchange. That's so powerful. Mm, thank you. Wow, doctor, that was such a, insightful healing conversations for many people who can listen and by the way there also there's also a saying you know write the book that you want to read you bet <laughs> <laughs> yes i i needed i i had shut down for the first 30 years of my life my mom said i was the hardest of the three daughters to communicate with <laughs> i didn't express my emotions i didn't communicate so when i found communication and realized the freedom and um just energy that it gave mm. me in life, mm. boy, it became the rest of my life. So my life is now really about merging the problem solving of engineering with the healing of medicine and then expanding it like to the work you do. I so respect the preventative nature of Ayurveda that you mm. move upstream and really help people long before they're in the emergency department. Mm. And just the wisdom that comes with that. Uh, I have great reverence for what you built. And what was your experience in Sitaram, if you may share a few words? Oh, what a delight. So definitely, it says like divine healing happens here. Um, I definitely agree. It felt like being held mm. in this beautiful structure that was flexible, but strong. So it allowed for my um, healing. It allowed for the nuances of my experience. It, it was customized to me. Um, I felt very, uh, I felt a personal touch. I loved walking on the beach every day. The food was exquisite. Um, the accommodation. So I got to stay uh, in the villages, uh, right, right. The ones that walk right to the ocean. I think mm -hmm. the ones you built in 2019. Yes. And wow, like it, mm -hmm. it just felt. Um, it's like a glass bathroom where you're taking a shower in the back, and I just felt like the way Sita Ram. It's like man and nature living in harmony. Mm. And it really felt like um, the people that you hire, I do not know how you do it, but every one of them was in such profound service 
that I think that really is what contributed to feeling so held. Mm. So it was the environment, it was the food, it was people seem aligned with their purpose. It's almost like um, they have a higher purpose than a paycheck. They know that they are sacred. They are having a sacred exchange with each one of us. That's so true. I mean, that's one of the intentions that we make it very clear with everyone. Mm. You know, and I told uh, my boyfriend, Raj, I told him, I said, Raj, this is conscious capitalism. Like, do you see how they celebrate their employees? Do you see mm. how the employees are connected to purpose? Do you see how the entire experience here is so welcoming of different cultures and adjusting to kind of help people through this difficult time? Um, meaning, like, I might need to cleanse something out of me, right? And you attend to not just the physical but the mental, emotional, social, spiritual. And so when I met you there and when I, uh, you know, spent time with you, it, it just felt like, it felt like I've known you for a long time. So if we believe in, you know, all these different lifetimes, I am pretty sure we are just meeting in this one. <laughs> for sure. Yes. I completely agree with that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Neha and all of you listening to this podcast. I will be putting all the details in the show notes and please do read the book Talk RX and I'll be putting the link where you can download. Then there's also audible version of this. I highly recommend all you all of you to listen to that. And yeah. doctor any other news that you would like to share? Yes, I would love to share and... my my this book uh, TalkRx was published in 2015 and the audiobook is certainly um I read it. Um, so that is going to be a great, if you have a harder time finding the actual book book, uh, it's because I just got the rights back, uh, to that book and I will be republishing it, but not with the publisher, but on my own, that'll come out in about oh, a year. Fantastic. But what's, what's coming up this year is September 19th will be my book on how to heal burnout. And fantastic. it's called powered, powered by me from burned out to fully charged at work and in life. So September yeah, of 2023. I need to have another episode with you on that. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. So, oh, especially post-pandemic. Yeah. I don't know if you're still post-pandemic, but the last two years, a lot yeah. of patients with burnout come to Sitaram and my goodness. Yeah, well, listen, here's the here's the deal. All, all I try to do in this book is simplify what the overwhelm of burnout is. Hmm. Then teach teach them how, like, in your life, for the rest of your life, new challenges are going to be coming. And so where are you on the spectrum from burned out to fully charged? Because it'll mm. vary throughout your life. And I want to teach people, first of all, what is burnout? And then at any point when you need to figure out where you are, it is determined by a net gain or a net mm -hmm. drain of energy on a physical, mental, emotional, social, spiritual level. So I'll ask you the questions and teach you how you can figure out if you're having a net gain or net drain of energy on those levels. So it's a tool you're going to be able to use throughout your life. And That's in 15 great. minutes, you'll be able to assess where do I need to, where am I getting a net gain? Where am I getting a net drain? And what tools do I need to use to try and uh, turn the drains into gains? So powered by me. I'm really looking forward for that book. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much, Vignesh. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Dr. Nehat. Thank you for this. Thank you for listening to Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond. If you loved and enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, share and review us. This helps to spread our mission of guiding humanity to becoming their healthiest self. 
and also giving the right resources for holistic healing. If you wish to know more about my work, please do visit www.vigneshdevraj.com. And if you are interested in doing an Ayurveda treatment or authentic Panchakarma therapy, please log on to www.sitaramretreat.com.